Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. We are journeying through the Apostles' Creed through the lens of Scripture. Um, if you were here last week, we started the series called the Apostles' Creed in a post-everything world. Um, and the reason why we're doing this is because the Creed has a lot of relevant things for us to talk about. Each word of the Creed will highlight something of importance that's happening within our culture and something of importance that is for us to know about our faith. And so just a reminder as to why we're doing this, um, I want to give you, again, the three important reasons why. The first one is because, number one, many Christians in our current culture do not know how to articulate the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I know of many Christians who can articulate various theologies about the return of Christ or, or whether or not women should be in ministry, but they, they can't articulate the gospel. And so we're doing this to ground ourselves with the basics, the fundamentals of the faith, so that we may know, how, know them and articulate them well. The second reason is because in a post-everything world, we need some clarity. And what I mean by post-everything world is we're living a post-truth, post-modern, post-whatever. I mean, everything is post. And so, but what it just simply means is that what our society has been used to, for better or worse, then it's people are moving on. They are immersing themselves into different worldviews, uh, different beliefs. And this series is not just to simply point at them and go, you're wrong. It's to surface issues that we may know how to dialogue around them as a church family. And so that's the second thing. The third thing why this is important is because it is going to challenge us no matter where on the theological spectrum you tend to land. And so if you land on the more fundamentalist side, you're going to be challenged because it shows you that the basics of the early church made a lot more room than what fundamentalists typically allow for in the church. You're going to be challenged in that regard. Now, if you're someone who identifies more of a revision or a progressive theology, you're going to be challenged because, the, because this says that there are important boundaries that you cannot really unpull out the pins without removing the centrality of Christianity. And so you're going to be challenged. And for those who are in a process or going through or have gone through the deconstruction process, uh, this is important because it provides you basic building blocks to reconstructing. I mentioned last week that many times when I sit with people who have gone through deconstruction, they, they're left with a pile of rubble and they're cynical and they never rebuild anything back up. This creed is important for you. But my hope is clarity, flexibility, and mission. All right? Amen? Well, if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. We were in Acts 17 last week. I told you we were going to be in there a little bit, and we may reference that today a little bit. When I want to start it with this 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5 and 6. Um, in Acts 17, when Paul's in Athens, he tells his listeners that we are all God's offspring. He uses a, a, an interesting word, though. He's referring that in some way we are all children of God. He means it in the most generic sense possible. What he means is we are all God. God is the source of all life. 
There's a difference, though, as we'll find today, in being God's child in general, from like he has created all things, and being God's child in covenant with him, understanding him as father. And so we're going to see how Paul speaks to both. Acts 17, he speaks to the general idea. And then here, he's talking to a church that is divided over many issues, struggling with ethical issues, spiritual issues, lots of division, um, a really culturally pressured church. Um, and these are Christians trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in their very radically complex time. Sounds very familiar. Well, these believers have come in from more of a pagan background, and pagan was not really a bad buzzword. It was just describing the general spiritual tone. And so for people who were practicing pagans into Christianity, it takes time for them to shed their beliefs and ideas that are not necessarily scriptural. And so they come into the church, and they're still offering food to other gods as an act of worship. And this is what Paul says, and I want you to listen to the undertones of the, of the creed here in verses 5 and 6. It says, Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods or many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. He's intentionally blurring some of the lines, but also showing clearly that God is one. In some sense, mysterious sense, he's also many. What I want you to see here, though, is he moves on from the generic God of all things just as a source to Father. For us. For us. This means he's not holding people who are outside the church to the same understanding and standard of what God is in this term. This is an in-house thing. And so we're looking today at that language of God the Father Almighty. God the Father. Now... All throughout Scripture, the idea of God the Father is present. Some have said that the that Jewish people did not have a concept for Father. It's all over the Old Testament. It's there. God says, I desired that you would call me Father. Um, he is considered the Father of the nation of Israel. And we'll look at some other texts that indicate um, other parental connotations with that or connotations with that. But it's most emphatic and most present in the ministry and teachings of Jesus and in the New Testament. It intensifies in the New Testament this idea that God is Father. It's emphatic in his teachings. It's, a, it's, a, it's at the baptism when Jesus' disciples, who, by the way, would, know, would have known how to pray according to the customs, they ask Jesus, teach us to pray like you. He says, begin with our Father. This would have left their jaw on the ground because of how um, the culture they had believed uh, taught about what it meant to be, who God was and what it meant to be a Father. And so it's about prayer it talks about, uh, Jesus talks about a shared divine nature with the Father. I and the Father are one. It's all over the place. And so we can't ignore it. It's central to the creed. And it was very important to the early church. It's very controversial, though. Very controversial. In fact, if you go to John 5.18, you'll see this. Listen, for this reason, Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, thereby making himself equal to God. Fatherhood, understanding the fatherhood rightly, was one of the main reasons why Jesus ends up on the cross. 
And so like we did last week, what do you mean when you say, I believe in God? This week, what do you mean when you say, God the Father Almighty? Well, that's the first thing we're going to look at, that question. What do we mean by God the Father Almighty? Like last week, it's good to get kind of a cultural tone around some of these issues. Um, and I want you to bear with me. I want, I want to, I rarely do this. I invite you to send me emails this week about this teaching. Um, there's a lot in me this morning. And there's a lot I want to say that I'm not going to get to say. And there's a good chance I'm going to say something partially. And you're going to be like, what? So bear with me. Send me an email. Give me a call. And we'll talk through it. And at the conversations, please treat the conversations gently. Okay? Let's do that. I won't, I, won't, I won't move on until you say, got it. Got it. Got it. All right. All right. So we actually have Bill Rader. Uh, Mark pointed this out. We actually have Bill Rader and Brian Widenar. They will bounce you out of the church if you don't treat the conversations gently. So, all right. Let's get the cultural tone around this issue of Father and Almighty. And I want to begin with a, with a really, it's a stupid story, but I, I can't not tell it. This past week, I was, uh, I, was, I was providing a meal for about, I think it was like 15 other pastors in the valley. We were getting together as pastors and sitting down talking, praying, and all that good stuff. Um, my good friend Jim Kena, he organizes this pastor's luncheon, and, and it was the table's turn to host, and we hosted it at the, the YTI building. Well, I get the food all prepared, I'm getting it all on the table, and it's time for the people to go through the aisle and get their food, and I walk up to the chips, and I see Cheeto Puffs. Cheeto Puffs. And it just took me back to my childhood in a profound way. And I watched myself reach for them and then not get them, and then, I, and then I pulled my hand back. Why do I have an aversion to Cheeto Puffs? Let me invite you into this story. When I was growing up, I had several older brothers, and we grew up wrestling, flipping over our go-kart, fishing, throwing each other in the pond, all of that stuff. All of that stuff. I recall one time, my brothers were all significantly larger than I am. I don't know what happened to me. I am the runt. So I don't know what their build is, but that's how they are. And so me being the runt, that has meaning for older brothers who are much bigger than you. Well, our, we would go to Walmart. Walmart was like a treat for us and our family. We would go once every couple of weeks. We would have a couple of dollars to spend. And I remember my mom was like, one day me and my brother Jason went with my mom to the store to Walmart. And she said, you don't have to use your money. I will get you chips. What chips do you want? And I remember I grabbed the bag of Cheeto Puffs. Jason, my older brother, looked at me, and he goes, Cheeto Puffs are for wimps. Get the crunchy. Get the crunchy. And from that moment on, I, have ne I never ate Cheeto Puffs. And there's, there's, I've, never ever, like, I've never looked at anybody eating Cheeto Puffs and go, wuss. Like, come on. <laughs> eat the Cheeto. Eat the crunchy Cheetos. Like, I've never done that. But I've noticed until I noticed I've never eaten them. Because there was something about my brother's words that like impacted me and in the environment I grew up in. And when I, I, I finally come to this table with a bunch of other pastors, I see the Cheeto puffs, I reach for them, I don't take them. And I'm like, you know what? I've been married 13 years. I am a grown man. I have three kids. I'm getting the Cheeto puffs. I grabbed the Cheeto puffs and I enjoyed those Cheeto puffs. Stupid story. Well, you're going you're gonna to applaud that? That story was so stupid. That was the... Hey, there, there we go. Okay. There we go. Delivery matters. But the reason why I tell you that story is to show you how our mind works. 
However, whatever culture environment we grow in, we grow up in, or are surrounded by, it shapes who you are, what you believe. It's impossible for it not to, in some capacity. From Cheeto puffs to more important conversations about fatherhood, power dynamics. We've all grown up in certain places that have shaped how we perceive things and how we live out a particular way. The same is true for fatherhood in this language of almighty. These are two words, father and almighty, that are hotly contested for various reasons in our culture. Almighty has to do with God's power, and power is a bad word in our culture. We've missed, there's a lot of abuses of power in many ways, and it breaks our hearts. And fatherhood, it evokes a lot of emotion. It evokes a lot of controversy. Some of these challenges, one is the broken relationships some of us in this room, including myself, have had with our father figures. You know, we, America is leading the way in single-parent homes. We have 19 million single-parent homes in the states right now. Of those, only 3 million are led with fathers. It doesn't matter what, kind of what side of the political aisle you're on. There's, they have different reasons and, and uh, approaches to resolving the issue, but everyone agrees that there's a fatherlessness crisis, and it's really affecting things. I tell you that not to talk about single parenthood and the challenges with that. I grew up in a broken home. I'm familiar with those things as well. I tell you that to let you know that when you're interacting with young people, you need to know that when you bring up father. And more personally, some of us in here may have had heartbreaking, awful, horrendous, horrific experiences with our fathers. And so the idea that God is father, we cannot not associate painful moments and wonder if that's what a father is and the Bible tells me that God is father is he going to abandon me is he never going to show up to the games is he it, all of that is he going to abuse me and then there's also the controversies about a gender right now we're not going to take a deep dive into that but one feminist scholar she said if God is male then male is God and the reason why she said that is because there has been times where the church has amplified this sort of masculine vision of God, the Father, and it it's, we'll find is a misuse of the analogy of Father. And so there's conversations about what it means that God is Father because, again, in our culture we think Father, we think male, and that's natural because that's what, that's what we think. But in this conversation we'll, we'll have to suspend, we'll have to try to our best to suspend that idea. But further, the growing beliefs about... Um, the further conversations about God, fatherhood and gender have led some to say we need to replace it with mother. The challenge with that is I know many people in this room and many people outside who have had equally problematic relationships with their mother as well. The same things happen. And so should we be altering? Should we be adjusting? What does it mean? What we'll find is that both, are, both language is important. But then also the further the conversation with gender goes in our culture, even the feminist theologians and feminist thinkers are being challenged by now the trans movement of saying, get rid of the idea of gender, period. That's a growing thing. Now, the church, what we can do is we can react. We can get upset, angry, point the finger and say, you're wrong. I have just honestly, I have never found that to be helpful. What we can do is what we're doing with this series is take a look at, okay, what, what, what we mean by this is this. Having clarifying conversations goes a lot further than condemning. You are called to be sent into the world as ambassadors of Jesus who represent his good news. And so to enter into the conversation about what well, we call God Father, you, if you're going to have that conversation long enough, you will bump into these conversations.
And so think now about the posture you want to approach this conversation with. Because these are the things that people are talking about. So there's that. And then there's also the misuse of fatherhood and maleness in the church. Now, very few theologians, you're going to be hard-pressed to find solid theologians who would ever say that God is male. That God's up there with an XY chromosome. But in practice, there's an ideology that has, that has given rise to many oppressive, unhealthy ways of understanding masculinity, fatherhood, that, have, that people derive and say they get it from the scriptures. So there have been injustice done from within the church by using the language of or, or elevating maleness because God is father. We need to be attuned to this. So how do we, how, how do we begin to engage this? What do we mean? Well, we need to know these conversations are happening. At this point in the sermon, people wonder, can we not just skip over this? This is really uncomfortable. Can we just get on to the encouragement piece? It's coming, but again, we are sent into the world. So let's keep pressing in a little bit further. What we're trying to do is read what happens typically with all the conversations, except I would say the abuse one. What's often happening is we read the scriptures through a cultural lens. We take a cultural happening and we look at the text as a glasses and we go, oh, Oh, well, then that must mean that. Rather than reading the culture theologically, which is what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to take our discipleship to Jesus and look at the world through that lens. Culture is not all in part bad. Some people think it is. It's not. And sometimes we find good prophetic voices from within the culture critiquing the way the church is doing things, and we ought to listen. But when we're trying to figure out what we mean at the central of our faith, we read theologically. We read culture through the lens of our discipleship to Jesus. That's what it means. So, to those who have absent or aggressive fathers, I want you to know God sees you. He loves you. He cares for you. And if saying God the Father is challenging for you, there are hundreds, hundreds of other rich expressions by which God invites us to call upon his name. If that's where you are, that's where you are. Don't let anybody tell you, well, you just need to get over it. I'm sorry if God's love as a father was not represented to you in your family. I'm sorry if that wasn't the case. My hope is that as those of us in this room who've had those challenging experiences grow, we can come to know and love the God as Father because the Scripture says He's the Father to the fatherless. And so a lot of your process will involve unlearning and relearning and trusting. And I pray that you would do that within a community, but I want you to know that up front, that God is patient and kind with you and He's tender with you. Now, related to the gender issues, Scripture and the early church have been having this conversation for a very long time. This conversation is not new for the church or the scriptures. The first thing I want to point out is that in the scriptures themselves, there are numerous texts that address what we call the motherhood of God. Isaiah 42 is a rich text. They're all over the prophetic literature. Listen to this one in Isaiah 46. It says, you who have been born by me from birth 
and have been carried from the womb. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel, describing God's character as a mother. The scriptures have that dynamic to it. And we need to bring that to bear in our discipleship. Further, in the early church, you know what one of the most one of the favorite portraits of the early church how to how to paint God, if you would, if you would? It was a breastfeeding mother taken out of these passages in the prophetic texts. Because there are scriptures that attest to that. They're painting what they see in the scriptures, the images. And so what's fascinating is how unique and how, how visible the motherhood of God is in Scripture in a highly patriarchal context. Already you see this redemption happening in the very Old Testament Scriptures that many people just want to reject. But there's a beautiful picture of the motherhood of God there. And further, 4th century church father who helped us define and articulate the Trinity he gave a sermon in the fourth century saying that when he was rejecting a lot of the other teachings, it was very common for other religions to ascribe a gender to their God, male or female. Very, very common. Unique to Christianity was saying that God transcends that. God transcends that. And so this fourth century church father who gave us a lot of our theology that we have now, he said, when we ascribe maleness to God, we are more pagan than Christian. Automatically, people right now go, what about Jesus? Jesus was male, and Jesus is God, therefore. Whoa, whoa, the church has already thought about that one too. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. The XY chromosome fascination stays within his humanity. The church has been thinking through this for a long time. And that's another conversation we'll have maybe when we get to Jesus about how tender the scriptures are. See, it was not uncommon for these male and female gods to force themselves upon humans in horrendous ways. The scriptures do not paint God like that. God caused the birth without being male. And they're very gentle, the birth narratives. Further, someone you could never call a progressive or radical thinker on the far end of the side is John Calvin. You don't get much more like fundamental than John Calvin. If you've studied church history at all, you read him, I read him, and I go, oh, okay. But this is what John Calvin says. God has manifested himself to be both father and mother so that we might be more aware of God's constant presence and willingness to assist us. Calvin. So if you're coming from the Reformed tradition and you're, and you're irking at me, take it up with your homeboy. Not me. This stuff has been thought through. This stuff has been talked about. This is nothing new to the conversation of Christianity. My concern is that Christians aren't aware that this conversation has been happening, and so we jump into the cultural waters without jumping first into the theological waters, saying, how has the church processed this? It's a long conversation. It's already been happening. So we don't need to get rid of God the Father. We need to clarify what we mean, and 
We don't need to replace God the Father with God the Mother because that would be anti-scriptural as well. Both are needed. Both are necessary. Both are good, beautiful, true, according to the text. And lastly here before we move on is that we need to know the limits of, what, of the analogy of Father. All language describing God is an analogy, which is an image that tells us what God is like for the sake of clarity. When we say God is a warrior, is he literally holding a bow and arrow or a literal sword? No, it is an analogy to describe for us what he is like. He does fight for us, right? Now, God is a judge. Does he, is he up there with the gavel? Literally. Not to my knowledge. Is he judging? Yes. Is God father? Yes. Is he up there with the literal XY chromosome? No. We got to know the limits of an analogy and let the limits be the limits. God is Father. He is caring for us, nurturing us, loving us, offering the compassion that a father should. All the language we have to be very careful with over-literalizing, because that's what the church has done, especially in recent years, is taken analogies and over-literalized them for the sake of advancing something they want to see. And it happens in progressive and fundamental camps. It just does. This is why we're going back to the basics. You still with me? So, God the Father, Almighty, the language of power concerns people. But I want us to see immediately, how does God use this power? How does God use this power? Well, what Jesus does is he teaches us about how God uses his power. He pours out his, uses his power to pour out his love and cause growth and restoration. Ben Myers, in this book on the Apostles' Creed, he writes this about this power. He says, he says, true power is not the ability to control. Controlling behavior is a sign of weakness and insecurity. True power is the ability to love without reserve. God's power, like the power of a good parent or teacher, is the capacity to nourish others and to help their freedom grow. This is the God you find in the Bible who's pouring out his power to help bring Growth, the invisible yet obvious power behind our spiritual growth, behind our, our, our community binding us together by the Spirit, there is an, there's an intense experience of God's power in those ways. Jesus says, you want to know how God like manifests the power of his kingdom? It looks like a mustard seed. Countercultural to every other way we see power used in the world. And so what do we mean when we say God is the Father Almighty? Simply you want the simplest answer? It means relationship. It means relationship. He is personal. It describes the relationship with the Son, the Son of God. Well, if there's a Son, we need to think Father. If there's a Father, we think Son. It helps us get a grasp of what we call Trinitarian theology. That's how the early church was talking a lot about it but also helps us recognize our relationship to God, that he is personally involved in our own lives. He's not just creator. He is our father. He is our father, nurturing, caring, loving. He is personal. That's what we mean when we say God the Father. This is why Jesus says, approach God our Father. He's saying, I want you to approach God in what is supposed to be one of the most... One of the most um, personal and intimate expressions of love that ought to be found. And again, many times in our world, it's not found in, in families. But we don't reject what it says. We clarify and try to learn to trust God with who he says he is for us. 
And many in this room have had poor experiences with our fathers, but have found the love of God the Father to be extremely important. He is personal. So, we can cut through a lot of the gender ideology that, 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 that surfaces when we talk about God the Father by saying, I hear you, but let me clarify what the church has meant by this and how long this conversation goes back for us as a church. These are, these are issues that the early church was profoundly aware of. They took pains to make sure that we handled the analogy of Father well. So, this is the second question. How do we recover our vision of God the Father Almighty? How do we recover that vision? Well, when we are struggling to make sense of the fatherhood of God, we press pause on the podcast, we stop reading the articles for a second, and we immerse ourselves in the words of Jesus. Immerse yourself in the word of Jesus. That is the best place to start, trusting that his spirit is going to speak to you. I have found more peace listening to the words of Jesus and maybe still having questions, then I have listening or reading people who think they have all the answers. And where does Jesus go? What's my, what, the favorite, my favorite spot where Jesus goes when he talks about the fatherhood of God is no other than the story of the compassionate father and the two lost sons, what you know as the prodigal son. I want to invite you just to listen. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to invite you to listen as I read this story. And I want you to attune yourself to what is the father doing? What is the father like? Often the sons get all the press. Listen to this. So however you best listen. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, father, give me the share of the wealth that belongs to me. So he divided his assets between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region, and there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that region, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that region, who sent him into the fields with to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread and enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, ignoring the speech that he had prepared, said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the robe, the best one, and put, him, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine who is dead is now alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, the other elder son was in the field. As he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. 
He called one of them, well, he called one of the slaves and asked, What's going on in there? He replied, Hey, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your commands, that you have never given me anything, not even a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he can't even call him his brother, but when this son of yours comes home who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because the brother of yours was dead and now he's come to life. He was lost and now he's found. This story is what Jesus wants you to know about the Father. He wants you safe and sound, not hurt. He's not interested in your speech of why you've ran away. He wants you back. This story does something to us. You know, this story in its own culture overturned the cultural beliefs about fatherhood in its own ways. Fathers didn't run. They didn't show public affection to their kids or give the inheritance early in this situation. No, these are unheard of things. It's a scandal. Nor would they receive the rebel with a celebration. They would have typically rejected him, shunned him, to keep the shame away from the family. Receiving the son means identifying with the shame of the child. This is God the Father. Could have gone to court. Could have done anything but he obliterates the cultural expectations of what a father looks like. And what Jesus does is he undoes and remakes the image of a father. So whatever we have, vision we have with God, it starts with a love that pursues, restores, and causes growth. That's the father. The second thing the story shows us is that we, how we perceive to be children. You know, for the rebellious son, the rebellious son thought that the father stood in the way of his freedom, self-expression, pleasure, adventure, exploration. This sounds a lot like Genesis 3, this fear that God is withholding or holding out on you. And when we move that direction, we find out and we come to our senses, we realize was not the obstacle of our intimacy and joy. That was the avenue of our intimacy with joy. And we ran away from it. Sometimes that's how we perceive being a child is, you're in my way, God. The self-righteous son, he thought the father owed him because of his hard work and loyalty. I've been doing all these things, you can give me nothing. He has a boss perspective of his father, not a father perspective. 
You know, Tim Keller points this out. He said, you know, there's a difference between the boss and the father is that with the boss, you have a cordial relationship. There's respect, there's value, so long as you do the job. But the minute you don't do the job, you're no longer connected. With the father, however, when something goes wrong and you mess up, the relationship intensifies when it's healthy because the father cares for you. He wants to be involved in the heartache, the heartbreak. He wants to be the mender of the broken heart. A boss, not so much. A father, yes. The son that stayed at home perceived himself in a contract way. And sometimes we do this. It's like in Malachi 1, Israel shouts, you've never loved us, God. And God says, I have loved you. And then lastly, this story warms our hearts with a life-giving vision for how God relates to us. You know, I'm, I'm watching Cove, Maggie, and Audrey now grow up, and what's fascinating to me is how different all three of them are. And if you're a teacher or a parent, you kind of understand where I'm going. There's no cookie-cutter approach to the kids. Each one is unique. Each one is different. Each one faces their own challenges. Each one has their own struggles. And what love doesn't do is love doesn't demand that these children accommodate our personality in order to receive our love. No, no. Good fatherhood, good motherhood would accommodate the kid to who they are and meet the children where they are. Um, I've learned that with Cove that I cannot treat Cove the way I treat Maggie and I cannot treat Maggie the way I treat Cove. Otherwise, the consequences are grave. It does more damage. And what, what does the father in this picture do? He does that. The son comes home from the trip, guilt-ridden, shame-ridden, has a speech in hand. Do you, think the, the, do you think the dad needed to approach him and go, let's talk about all the wrong you did? No, he was apparently aware of it. Instead, the father, it says, wrapped his arms around the neck. The word is tackle. <laughs> tackle. Tackled by the gracious love of God. That's how the father approaches the son. But does he go and tackle the self-righteous one? No, because the self-righteous one has a wall that keeps them at a distance. He doesn't have that sort of relationship. But the father does speak directly to him and invites him in, in a way that that son might respond to. We don't know, but that's what the father does. He meets you where you are. He accommodates himself to where you are, your personality, and he says, I love you. I love you. He's not forcing you into some kind of mold. He wants to care for you as he has created you. The father meets his sons right where they are, invites them into something new. His aim is loving reunion. You know, there are so many different analogies of, the, of God in the scriptures. We talked about that. But Jesus says, when we approach God in prayer, he says, start with Father, meaning we see the judge through the lens of the Father. We see the warrior through the lens of the Father. We see all of these other images, first and foremost, through the lens of the Father. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then we understand the Father through the lens of how Jesus speaks about the Father. You see, and then for you, going out in the world... Now and Henry Nowen hits the nail on the head in his awesome little book. Probably no other book has changed my perception of, of my relationship with God than this book called The Prodigal, The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen. He walks through each character and he says at different points at different times, we are all the rebel. And then at another time in our life, we're the self-righteous. The goal is to find 
home with the Father and then to become like the Father to others. Take the disposition that is given to you by Jesus and give that to others. Our world is angry, lacks compassion, but it craves it. Can we give this to them, to the world? Can we receive this in our own way? And so when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, we are saying that we trust God and entrust ourselves to Him to care for us, to provide for us in a most profound way. And we say that He can be trusted with full control over our lives. And when we want to know what we mean by God the Father, we look to the person of Jesus, because Jesus, I and the Father of one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. You can't see the Father unless you see me. It says that, the, that Jesus is the fullest expression of God. And so whatever questions you have about God, start with Jesus. He reveals the Father and what the Father is like. These are long conversations, been happening a long time, but it is central to understand God. Saying God is Father does not negate the maternal pictures of God that are all over the scriptures. We need both. But Jesus is inviting us into discipleship, and part of discipleship is growing to know God in this personal way. This is what you can give to people outside of the church. You can give them the posture of the Father. Amen? Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing in sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.